Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avinu Machinu, our Father and King, Father, we praise you and thank you for giving us opportunity to gather together as a mishpacha, as family, to uh, open your word, to study it, and to learn from you. Father, I pray that you speak boldly into our hearts and lives today, that it be your word spoken, your heart felt and received. Father, use me as a uh, tool for you, a vessel for you that you speak through, but let nothing of me or my own mind or thoughts be involved. Father, we give you complete control this morning, and we ask you to move in our midst and speak boldly into our hearts. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. All right, this week we are in Parsha Ekev from uh, Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 11, 25. Um, we are moving rather rapidly through Deuteronomy, if you haven't caught on yet. Uh, we're just a few uh, weeks out, about uh, a little over two months out from being finished with this cycle and starting Bereshit, uh, Genesis, all over again. Um, this is a very interesting book in general. If you haven't caught on to that, moving through the book of Deuteronomy thus far, um, I like to call it the book that should have never been. The only reason that the book of Deuteronomy exists, aside from you know, it was God's will. Uh, the reason it exists is because we as a nation decided we were not going to do what God asked of us. We decided not to take the promised land. Had we taken the promised land as opposed to living, listening to the 10 spies, uh, we would have never had to deal with the recounting of the book of Deuteronomy in the way we did. Now, we know it was all part of God's plan. Everything works out, and he had a reason and a purpose for it. But I call it the book that should have never been because if we'd have just been willing to heed his voice, to listen and obey... Uh, and trust in him, especially after everything he did bringing us out of Egypt, then we would have never been in the situation we were uh, as we approach the uh, Jordan for the second time and prepare to cross over uh, into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Um, so this week we are moving into, uh, uh, further into Deuteronomy, and as we do, what we realize is, is each week there appears to be more of a discussion uh, and a building of that discussion of the blessings and curses that we read in great detail about later on in Deuteronomy in 28, 29, 30. Um, and this week we see some of that. We also see a repeating or a recounting of uh, the parts of the Hafta, uh, the second portion of the Shema. And, uh, and as we see all of this come together, just like last week when I talked about there being a centralized theme throughout the entire Parsha of hearing and seeing uh, what God is doing and what he is speaking. This week we have a similar concept, a similar theme going through, but it links, and, and it's, it's dumbfounding to me watching the way God's word comes alive. Um, we talked about this a few weeks ago leading up to Tish B'Av. Uh, Tish B'Av uh, is the day that both temples destroyed, a whole bunch of other really gnarly things happened to, to the Jewish people, to Israel, uh, throughout our existence. Um, and uh, it all seems to happen on this one day. It's, it's kind of like the Jewish version of 9-11. It's just a really bad day. Uh, and we're constantly, it's a morning day. It's a day that we're constantly just waiting for the next big deal to occur. Um, but there was something phenomenal that happened on Tishbab as well. We know that the 10 spies brought an evil report back on Tishbab. They crossed the Jordan River on Tishbab. They bring that evil report that ends up condemning Israel to spend 40 years wandering the, the wilderness before taking the land. But we see in Matthew uh, 4, 
uh, Matthew 3 and 4 and Luke 3 and 4, the account of Yeshua being immersed by Yochanan Hamadbil, by John the Immerser in the Jordan River. The day that Yeshua was immersed was on Tishbab, the ninth of Av, the exact same day that the ten spies bring an evil report, the exact same day that the temples are destroyed, the exact same day that all Jews had to be out of Spain and all Spanish territory during the Inquisitions, uh, and so on and so forth. It was the exact same time. And if you pay attention to the way the narrative plays out as Yeshua is immersed in the Jordan on Tishbab, the same waters that the spies cross on Tishbab. He crosses over the Jordan, goes into the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, one day for every, day that, or every year that Israel spent in the wilderness, and one day for every day that the spies spent in the promised land before they brought back an evil report. He begins his ministry with a work of redemption redeeming the mistakes of the nation of Israel in those days. And we see time frame how this all pans out, and we can prove it by following the lead of the rest of Scripture. We know that the Torah cycle itself was established about 500 years before Yeshua walked on earth in human form. Uh, during the days, uh, roughly during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of, of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and the reason we built the, set up the Torah cycle is because we realized, hey, we're in the position we're in right now because of the fact that we walked away from the Word of God. We stopped reading it. We stopped having a part of it. And we need to make it a part of our life again on a daily basis. And so we set up the Torah cycle. Well, each of the three responses that Yeshua gives to Hasatan, to the adversary, when he tempts Yeshua in the wilderness, each of the three responses comes from two of them from last week's Parsha, one of them from this week's Parsha. Then we move on, and when Yeshua crosses back over the Jordan at the end of the 40 days, and he goes back to his home synagogue and his hometown, they call him up, which is quite common in the synagogue. When somebody's been gone for a long time, they come back, you bring them up to read from the scroll. It's an honor to come up and to take part in the Torah service and to read and to carry the scroll. It's a joy. It's an excitement. There's an honor to it. And when somebody's been gone for a while, there's an extra honor that goes into it. And so they call Yeshua up. And you don't just kind of haphazardly decide where you're going to read out of the Torah scroll. There's a, a portion of scripture that's aligned for that. And so the Haftorah reading for that particular week, when the Haftorah scroll was roll, rolled open, the reading that he was supposed to read was the Haftorah reading for the week that follows at the end of that 40-day period, right before Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and so we can see the way this all pans out. He gets up to read, and he reads that exact passage, and it all plays out, and you can just see the providence of God in the whole narrative and the whole expression. But that particular incident, and especially one of the responses that Yeshua gives to the adversary that comes from this week's, Haftor, this week's Torah Parsha, I think is that central theme that flows throughout this Parsha, that ultimately flows throughout Scripture in general, that is of the utmost importance for us to hold on to. So if you'll open up to Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. This is the beginning of the Torah Parsha, Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. It says, then it will happen as a result of your listening to these ordinances, when you keep and do them, that Adonai your God will keep with you the covenant kindness that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the produce of your soil, uh, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and the land that he swore to your, to, that he swore to your fathers to give you. So we backtrack to verse 12. First, right out the gate, we see as a result of your listening to these ordinances, and the word there for listening, the, the root word there is Shema, as in we say the Shema every week from Deuteronomy 6, where Shema, to listen. It's a, a, a word that specifically means to hear intelligently. Um, with, you're, you're listening with attention, uh, and you're listening with the, the, uh, object, uh, the, the objective of, of being obedient to what you're hearing. 
All right, you're not just haphazardly hearing what somebody's saying going on about your life, but you're actually intently listening so that you can be obedient to what's being said. And then we move down, he says, after listening to these ordinances, says, when you keep and do them, and that word keep, just like we talked last week, that root word there of keep is shamar, to guard, to protect, to put a hedge about, uh, to, to attend to, to be observant of, uh, to hold to a high regard. So he says, if you listen to, his, to the ordinances and you keep and do them, you protect them, you guard them, as well as honoring them, then he says, then Adonai your God will keep with you the covenant kindness that he promises. And that, that word again, keep, the root word there in Hebrew is shamar, the same exact word, to guard, to, to protect, to put a hedge about. Uh, and so there's this direct correlation in the way that the wording is said that we're not looking at just a, okay, God said do this, so quid pro quo, I'm going to do this so that he does this for me. But instead, it's a, a legitimate decision to honor something with a, a, a zealousness, a, uh, a healthy, righteous jealousy for God, for his word, for that relationship we have for him. And most importantly, he is going to do his in, and you got you to gotta understand, this is the most complicated part to understand. Uh, as humans, uh, we don't have relationships like this with other humans, all right? God is going to be obedient and, and protect and shamar. He's going to guard that covenant from his side, no matter what we do, all right? You got to understand that. Part of the covenant that he makes with Israel is that if we jack things up, he's going to discipline us. That's part of the covenant. So even when he booted us out of the land until we uh, kind of got our minds right and came back in, in repentance and teshuvah to him. That was a part of the covenant. And the blessings and curses later in Deuteronomy, he says, uh, if you honor my word, all of these really good things will happen to you. And you which, which, by the way, versus the prosperity gospel notion, all of those really good things are basically God saying, I'm going to provide for you. Not, I'm going to make you disgustingly rich. It's not to say he won't. But that's not what he promises. His promise is, you won't do without. You will be comfortable. You will not be hungry. You will have descendants. You will have uh, blessing upon you. Uh, and then he says, and if you don't honor my covenant and my word with you, all of these really bad things will happen, which are literally the exact opposite of the provision. Well, I don't know about you guys, but there's been countless times in my life that I was not walking right with him. And guess what he still did? I wasn't honoring my end of the covenant, but he was still honoring his. And he was still providing. But because I was outside of his will, I didn't recognize that provision. All right? Bills were getting paid. Food was on the table. There was a roof over my head. But I, there, you, you're not in the right mindset to recognize that provision. But it's still there. But once we get back on track and we make teshuvah and we turn back around to him, all of a sudden the lights come on. Those headlights open up. And you can see everything in front of you and realize not only has he been providing, but it's a sheer miracle by the hand of God that we're even alive. I mean, maybe that's just my experience. Maybe I'm just that stupid that it's that bad. But, but it's sheer miracle that, that we're even alive. We move forward to chapter 8, uh, verse, verse 1. It says, You are to take care to do the, the whole mitzvah, the whole commands that I, uh, that I am commanding you today, so that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that Adonai swore to your fathers. You are to remember all the way that Adonai your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his mitzvot or not. He afflicted you and let you hunger. Then he fed you manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, in order to make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of Adonai. Now, we're going to speed up here. Uh, most of you have heard me preach long enough to know that if I say we're going to speed up, it's probably not good because I go fast already. But we're going to speed up a little bit here, mainly because I want to get to a couple of things that I think really just stand out in a big way. All right, this Parsha, he says, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, right? Now, we know that Genesis says that he created man, uh, mankind, he breathed his ruach, uh, Chaim is breath of life into us. So we're breathing his ruach. And the ruach, breath, is also the word we use for spirit, right? So ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit. His ruach, Chaim, is breath of life. It's his spirit, his breath that he breathes into us. So every piece, every human being that's ever existed in the history of humanity has had the breath of life within him, has had some portion of the spirit of God within him. In Judaism, uh, the, this is what's often referred to as the spark of God, the divine spark that is within all of creation. Uh, and so Judaism, especially Kabbalistic Judaism, is looking at everything, whether you're talking a tree or a rock or a human, there's a divine spark in everything. And our aim as humanity, our desire should be to bring those divine sparks together. And it kind of comes into that image that Paul's dealing with, with many parts coming together and each having a different gift of the Spirit, but those parts coming to together to make one body. Right? And so the images are, are the aim is to bring all of those divine sparks together so that as a, a unit, as a community, there's this greater rele relevance, this greater uh, revelation of the divine presence of God in our midst. And so when we look at Israel in the wilderness, what was it? There was uh, uh, upwards of three to five million people, if you're counting not just the, those that came out that were actually blood descendants, lineage, that were of warfare age, but also the mixed multitude that came out with them. There were from three to five million people that were there. And when all of these people who all contained at least some presence of the breath of life, the Spirit of God came together, what was in their midst? The presence of God, Right? And when we start to, to break away in sin, what are we doing? We're actually causing division to that cohesiveness, that unity within that, that, that communal experience that brings that divine spark together. And so when we start to, to sin and break apart, we bring disunity. And we actually, because the nation as a whole, little sin starts to cause more sin, starts to cause more sin, and more people fall into those sins. And the nation starts to get disbanded. Well, all of a sudden, the presence of God is removed from his people, Right? Then we come back together again. Finally, God brings us back together again. Again, the same thing, that nation comes together, that image of the Spirit of God coming back together again among His people, each of the pieces of the body coming back together, and His presence is with us again. And there's this beautiful image that goes through there. But He says, uh, he, says you were, are, he says, He afflicted, verse 3, He afflicted you and let you hunger, then He fed you manna. Now keep in mind, He didn't actually afflict them. All right? he's, he's using their words. Moses is using Israel's words. The first generation comes out, and the first thing out in their mouth on the other side of the river is, oh, come on, God, we got no food to eat. There's nothing to eat. We had plenty of food back in Egypt. Uh, things were great and wonderful. We had anything we could ever want. You brought us out here. Were there not enough graves that we could have starved to death in Egypt? And God provides the manna, the manhu. What is this? Right? He provides the manna for them, and, and they're able to eat from it. And so he says, I afflicted you and let you hunger. Then he fed you manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, in order to make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Adonai. Now we move forward to Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse 1. 
And this is, again, this is Yeshua in the wilderness. This is him being tempted by the enemy. This is right after his immersion uh, with Yochanan Hamabil, John the Immerser. He's now in the wilderness for 40 days. Verse 1 says, Then Yeshua was led by the Ruach, by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are Ben Elohim, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But he replied, and I want you to understand, every accusation, every temptation that the enemy puts before him, it all comes from Scripture, all right? The enemy's not like just randomly plucking ideas out of thin air. Every accusation, every temptation he puts before Yeshua all comes from Scripture because the enemy knows the Scripture better than any of us do, likely. And he likes to use the fact that he knows it to toy with us because he's going to mess us all up on it. And so he comes to Yeshua, he takes these little tidbits of Scripture out of, out of context, and he says, uh, if you are Ben Elohim, if you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And then he's, uh, But Yeshua, he says, he replies, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where this really gets interesting is, let's move, back to, uh, move forward to John 1. Some of you know this passage. The concept's starting to come together. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and apart from him, nothing was made that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Uh, sorry, we're skipping down verse 12 now. But whenever, uh, whoever did receive him, those trusting in his name, to these he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of a bloodline, not of, nor of human desire, nor of man's will, but of God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We looked upon his glory, the glory of the one, and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeshua, when being tempted by the adversary, the adversary says, if you are really Ben Elohim, if you are, are really and truly the Son of God, make these stones become bread. You're hungry, right? You're supposed to be God in flesh. Make these stones become bread. And Yeshua responds back with the words from Moses from the Torah from this week's Parsha in Deuteronomy. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. John 1 then moves forward and says, well, Yeshua is that word, Right? And we go back to Deuteronomy again, chapter 10, verse 12. So now, O Israel, what does Adonai your God require of you but to fear Adonai your God? That word fear in the Hebrew, the root word is, let me get my notes actually open, there we go. That root word is yareh, uh, a primitive root. It means to fear morally, to revere, um, uh, to frighten. Now, this isn't the idea of like, you know, you're, you're scared to death that Freddy Krueger is going to jump out of your closet or something. This is a fear rooted in reverence. Um, anybody ever been around uh, a military general, like a really hard-pressed, a Marine Corps general or something, just a really hard-pressed uh, uh, military general or uh, a drill instructor or something, right? When they start to talk, even if you've never had any military experience, when somebody like that starts to talk, even if you have no clue who they are, something about them causes you to listen, right? And you just kind of jolt up. You, you don't want to get on this dude's bad side. It doesn't matter what they are, who they are, where they're from. You don't want to get on this guy's bad side, right? Um, if a, a police officer pops his lights on behind you, right, and he comes around to the door, not that I've ever had experience with this, but he comes around to your door and you roll your window down, uh, you, there's, there's a certain degree of reverence that goes into, or there should be, 
It's usually what keeps you out of jail. Um, but there's a certain degree of reverence that goes into the way you respond to that individual, to that police officer at your door, your parents, if you're your father. I, my, I hear this, heard this all the time growing up is, you know, if, if I did something wrong, my dad would, would call out to me and get my attention. Well, when you know you're doing something wrong and you hear your father's voice, you really kind of become a little more alert. Um, and there's, there's a certain degree of reverence and, uh, until the belt comes off, and then that fear changes a little bit. Um, but but he, say, he says, But to fear Adonai your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the mitzvot of Adonai and his statutes that I am commanding you today for your own good. Behold, to Adonai your God belong the heavens and the highest of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Only on your fathers did Adonai set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you, from all the peoples, as is the case today. He says, he chose your fathers to love. The covenant that he made with your fathers is why he loves you. So he doesn't love the, the, the love, that relationship that Israel's dealing with right here. It's not on their own behalf. It's not because of anything they've done or haven't done. It's because of what God's word was with their fathers. And there's that connection. So like I said before, God honors that covenant even when we're not. And we may not recognize it, but he honors that covenant even when we're not. Israel's in the situation they were in leading up to this point uh, where now the entire second generation, the, gener the first generation is gone and it's just the second generation left. They were in this point because their fathers and their forefathers didn't hold to that covenant. But God still provided and, and held to that covenant for them. But where it gets interesting is verse 16. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked anymore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You mean Paul wasn't the first one to talk about the circumcision of the heart? Romans isn't the first place that comes up? I thought that that doesn't make sense. It says circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And then Jeremiah 31. It says, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. It is a declaration of Adonai. I will put my Torah within them. Yes, I will write it on their heart. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each teach his neighbor or each brother, saying, No, Adonai, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest is the declaration of Adonai, for I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. And then Paul quotes in Romans that idea of the circumcision of the heart, and he links it to both the Jew and the non-Jew coming together in the blood atonement of Messiah uh, in relation, covenantal relationship with him. And that idea, that circumcision of the heart, all right? The Lord says it's not by bread alone that we live, but it's by every word that comes forth from the mouth of Adonai, right? That circumcision of the heart, I believe the true expression, that circumcision of the heart is exactly what we would read about in Jeremiah 31. This new covenant where the word is now etched upon our flesh. It's now a part of who we are. Now, for us as believers, what we recognize there is the image of Yeshua, right? The scripture says Yeshua now resides within our heart. John says Yeshua is the word made flesh, tabernacle amongst us. That word, the very same word through which all of creation has existed, that word now resides within us. That covenant that was made with Israel was a covenant that Israel could never keep, could never, never keep on their own. It wasn't possible. As a matter of fact, still today, it's not possible for any of us to keep that covenant at all on our own until we recognize that it's not by bread alone that we live, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. That the word made flesh 
through which all of creation was spoken into existence, now resides within us. That breath of life, that Ruach Haim, that Spirit of God is now sparked into something more because we've received the fullness of the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit within us. Now we no longer live just on bread, but instead we live on the bread of life, the words of Messiah, the Word of God Himself, the very presence of the Lord within our own hearts and our lives. And guess what? Now that that flesh has been circumcised, the flesh of the heart, not the physical circumcision, but the circumcision of the heart, now we can actually honor that covenant. We're still not going to do it perfectly. We're still going to jack things up from time to time. But now we actually are capable, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Because all the way throughout history, even though Israel continually, we failed to honor the covenants of God, not only did God always uphold his end of the covenant, not only did he always honor and protect and cherish and shamar, guard his end of the covenant, but he continually renewed that covenant with us. Made the covenant with Abraham, he renewed it with Isaac, he renewed it with Jacob, he renewed it again with Israel, he renewed it again before the second generation went into the promised land. The second generation gets across the river and they go and circumcise themselves and there's a renewal of the covenant again. And then it's renewed again through David and through Solomon and it's renewed again through the rebuilding of the temple and it's renewed again and again throughout the history of the scriptures. But now we have the fullness of understanding of what that covenant really was. It was never about just what happened at Mount Sinai. It was never about solely on the externals keeping strictly to any list of rules and regulations and commandments. It was always about driving us along to where the literal bread of life resides within us. Those words become a very part of who we are. And now we live out that covenant from the inside out. You've heard me talk about it before in Matthew 5. Yeshua says, you've heard it said it's a sin to commit murder, but I say if you've even hated somebody, you've already committed it. You've heard it's a sin to commit lust, uh, adultery, but if you've even lusted somebody, you've already committed it. Both hatred and murder, both lust and adultery are dealt with in the Torah. There are commands against both of them. But what Yeshua is saying is for every external command, there is an internal command. And if you let me handle the internal, in other words, if you are truly circumcised of the heart, if the word of God resides within you, if the presence of God, the spirit of God resides within you, he'll take care of the internal so the external has to follow suit. If you cannot hate somebody, guess what you also cannot do? You cannot commit murder. If you cannot lust after someone, you cannot commit adultery or fornication. It's not possible. It is only through the bread of life, the very word itself, every word that comes forth from the mouth of God, that we are able to be alive and to find sustenance. I don't know how many of you, um, I don't know what your, all of your backgrounds are, where your lives are, where you've come from. I know in my own personal life that there have been times in my life where I was really strict to being in the word all the time, hours upon hours upon hours. And there were times in my life where weeks and months would go by where I would even forget that the Bible exists. I wouldn't stop trying to, to live a righteous life, and I didn't, the relationship I had with God didn't, didn't come to a halt, but you know, this got in the way or that got in the way or there was this schedule conflict or I had to be here too early or uh, uh, you know, I didn't have the energy left to stay awake to do it later on in the day or whatever. It's all these stupid little things that get in the way. 
But it's in those times where we're not in the Word that guess what else happens? We start to lead a little, to the, to a little bit astray. We start to go to the right or to the left instead of staying straight. We also start to get hungry. And I don't mean hungry like you need a slice of pizza. I mean hungry like you know there's something missing in your life. There's something that's, that's just not whole. There's a void there. Again, God doesn't abandon his side of the covenant. He's there the whole time. We've been bought by the blood of the lamb. If you confess faith in the salvation of Yeshua, you're bought by the blood of the lamb. The word is there. The circumcision of the heart is there. He's keeping up his end of the covenant. The problem is, is we're outside of his will. So we don't recognize that provision. We don't recognize that there's actually sustenance there. That all we have to do is take it. Grab onto it. Enjoy it. Love it. Honor it. We don't understand far too often as believers, especially in this day and age, we don't understand the importance of guarding, as we said last week, guarding our heart and our soul that Parsha says so many times. This week, we don't understand the idea God's guarding his side of the covenant and he's guarding us in that covenant, but we've got to guard our end of the covenant too. We like to think that there's grace versus law, that it's one or the other. But the reality is, is that the law exists, the Torah, and the law is just such a horrible translation too. It's actually instructions. There are laws contained within the Torah, but it's instructions for a righteous and holy life. But the reality is, we have the Torah because of grace. Let's take it a step further back. We exist because of grace. We exist because of grace. God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew you and I were going to sin, and he created us anyways. He was honoring his covenant with us before we even made it, before we even knew that it existed, before we even knew there was a choice. He was honoring his end of the covenant. The reality is, is every single person that has ever been born and breathed in the Ruach Haim, the breath of life, is a part of a covenant with God. They may not be walking in it, but they're a part of a covenant with God. And breaking that covenant with God, that's what, that's what, what, causes, what causes us to be outside of the will of God. That's what causes us to deal with the consequences of being outside of the will of God. And ultimately, that's what causes us not to experience salvation. But I believe when God begins to work in our hearts and our lives and draw us toward his salvation, towards his saving grace, towards the blood of Messiah. It's all because that breath of life, that Ruach Haim, that bit of the Spirit of God, that divine spark, whatever you want to call it, it's all because that is there and God is tugging at our heart with it and drawing us closer and closer to him. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. The question I have for you today is, are you living by the bread of life that spoke each of us into creation? Are you merely trying to find sustenance in the bread that comes from the bunny store? Or are you finding sustenance in the bread of life? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the Lord. Yeshua is that word. 
It is through that word that all creation exists, including you and me. And the reason we exist is to be bought by the blood of the Lamb. And once we're bought by the blood of the Lamb, it is our duty to continue to guard that covenant that we're a part of. Because the covenant that we were born into, receiving the Ruach Chaim, the breath of life, is the same covenant that is renewed when we accept salvation, literal life, eternal life in the midst of our Father. That concept of that circumcision of the heart appears several times throughout Scripture. And the ultimate idea is it doesn't matter where we are in our life, who we are, what's happening around us. God wants us to walk in that covenant. Romans deals with it the way Paul deals with it in Romans, the way he does to make us understand that that circumcision of the heart is the most important thing. And he's quoting Moses. He's quoting Moses, that circumcision of the heart is the most important thing. You can be circumcised on the outside and it would mean absolutely nothing and you would still be, pardon me for being a little strong here, you'd still be worthless. Absolutely worthless until you're circumcised of the heart. Our worth is found in the kingdom of God and you are not in the kingdom of God if you have not been circumcised of the heart. If you have not been nourished and solely being nourished by the bread of life. And I think within the body of Messiah, far too often we lose focus of that. And what God is calling us back to, especially in these days, is to guard our relationship, our covenant with Him, to guard who we are in Him, to guard that bread of life within us so that others see it, recognize it, and want it. And we can share with them Go and make disciples of all nations. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We glorify you. We're perplexed by the very thought of the fact that you love us sometimes in our lives. But Father, we rejoice in that love. We rejoice in that constant drawing that you do, tugging at our heart, to return back to you. Father, we rejoice in the beauty of being in covenantal relationship with you. That even when we foul things up, that you're still guarding that covenant. Making a way for us to return back to you. Father, I pray right now for a special anointing of your Ruach HaKodesh, of your Holy Spirit over each and every person in this room right now. And if there's anyone here that has been ignoring that tug on their heart, if there's anyone here that has been walking outside of the realities of the covenant, of being nourished by your bread of life, of being fully enveloped in the circumcision of the heart, Father, I pray right here, right now, that you begin to speak into their hearts, begin to awaken them, to the beauty of what you have in store for them in your salvation. To the beauty you have in store for them in that restoration and renewal. And Father, I, be, I pray right now that your spirit softens their heart and they open up to you, receive you, and accept your salvation, your restoration, and the bread of life that awaits. V'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. 
In the name of Yeshua, Messiah, we pray. Amen.